Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, Dewalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome to episode number 10 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And as I said in a prior episode, this is the second installment in a three-part series around equity, specifically earned equity and associate equity. Attracting, motivating, and retaining associates is the number one problem with all group practices, no matter how big or small you are, and no matter how long you've been in business. Today, I'm gonna be joined behind the microphone by my partner, DeWalker Sinha. That's right, we're bringing the little guy back behind the mic, and we're gonna do a deep dive into something we call restricted stock units. It's an earned equity model that's proven to be very successful for a number of our clients. I know you'll find it to be very beneficial and hopefully incredibly educational. It's sure to be another note-taking episode, so get your pad and pen ready and brew another cup of that awful Keurig coffee, because we're ready to roll. Once again, thanks to everyone for joining us on the podcast today. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your primary host. I'm thrilled to be joined once again today behind the mic by my partner, DeWalker Sinha. And some say that instead of reading his two-year-old daughter lullabies to get her to fall asleep, he actually recites multiplication tables instead. DeWalker, do you want to say hello to the audience and can you confirm or deny that? Uh, hi, parent. Thanks for uh, having me, Matt. Good to be back, everyone. Uh, she's great at math, so uh, you know I, I do focus on that and she does fall asleep, so I'll confirm that for now. Needless to, say, needless to say, DeWalker never knows how I'm actually going to introduce him on this program. And I like to kind of keep him on his toes and make sure he's paying attention as any good teacher or professor would. So once again, thanks everybody for joining us uh, on the podcast. This is the second in a three-part series, and it really de it deals and, and dives deep into areas of equity. Right now, we're focusing on an earned equity type model um, from both an associate and potentially an executive perspective. Obviously, we're going to address concerns uh, and thought process around being the founder and how all of this works. But for those that listen to the prior podcast, I teed up a lot of concepts around what you would term to be an earned equity model. And that's very different from what has been the historical norm in the world of dentistry as we talk about associates, partnerships, and the like. There are a lot of significant differences. I unpacked a number of them at a high level. And today, DeWalker and I are gonna dive deep into a concept called restricted stock unit or restricted membership unit type of an opportunity. DeWalker, why don't we take this from the top and, and maybe just at a high level, if you want to share with the audience some of what you like best about the programs we've built 
uh, at a high level or even f- philosophically? Uh, yeah, um, thank you, Perrin. So I, I, I think the, the options uh, people have in this space, and this is not just uh, tied to just healthcare in general, uh, but you know, focusing on healthcare in general, just for for our conversation, is um, you know people have a traditional buy-in, and I say traditional buy-in, um, not that there's you know uh, anything negative with the model that's been the status quo probably for you know my uh, last twenty years of being in the healthcare space, which is you know somebody's practice is worth a million or two million dollars, and typically there's a traditional valuation done at seventy or eighty or ninety percent of revenue. And somebody buys in for fifty percent of that, um, and that's probably I would say ninety-eight, or uh, that's probably a, a guesstimate from my side. Ninety-plus percent of the market uses that as a process, uh, and it works. It's worked for many years, and I believe it'll continue to work for the inevitable future. Uh, our approach has just been different in the fact that you know we want people to be able to grow the pie as the equity is being realized. Um, and not to say there might be not be a little bit of a check that's being written to get some skin in the game, but I think the great, uh, exciting part of, about this program is that it allows the associate doctor partner to become a material partner in the business without having to take out a loan from their local bank of five hundred thousand million, you know, depending on the size of the business, even more, um, and they're not incurring more debt. You know, I think if you look at the average 30 to 35 year old doctor, uh, they still probably have 250 to $400,000 of student loan debt. They, depending on the demographic in the country or region of the country you're at, you probably have a mortgage of anywhere from 500,000 to a million dollars, maybe more. Um, and I think it's, you know, it puts a lot of uh, pressure on that doctor to take on an additional loan of a significant amount. So. This allows the doctor to, to realize their dreams for themselves and their family of realizing material equity without having to borrow that additional million dollars in debt uh, or potentially more to become a partner. So I think these tools that uh, we've kind of taken from you know the, the corporate Fortune, corporate America Fortune 500 companies and understanding the economic engine that we need to build through the, the goals of our doctor, associate partners, and the principals allow both parties to you know, uh, achieve their mutual goals, which is to work together, build the right business, and, and focus on patient care in the long term. Yeah, that, that's excellent. And, and to drive home that point just a little bit further, which I think I mentioned this in the prior podcast uh, when I was given the overview, but you know, the, the earned equity models that we talk about, be it restricted stock unit today and the profits interest unit on a subsequent podcast, I'd love to tell the audience that DeWalker and I are just pure geniuses and we dreamt this stuff up out of you know thin air and, and created a model. I'd be lying if I said that. These are tried and true methodologies. These are proven principles that corporate America uses to not only recruit the best and the brightest, but to, to motivate and retain their top tier talent. And, and I think that's uh, important for our audience to understand that that this is a proven methodology that we've just frankly, reverse engineered uh, for group dental practices because the principles hold true in in both applications. The one other thing I would add uh, to to Walker's earlier response uh, in terms of, you know, the the best pieces of the program, 
you talked about it from the associate standpoint and taking on debt, and that's 100% true. But the other thing that doesn't get talked about that often is from the founder or the owner's standpoint. And one of the challenges uh, from a founder perspective, if, if he or she wants to allow an associate to become a, a part owner and, and the associate takes on the debt and buys into the business at some level, 50% or something like that, is that the founder often has concerns about, well, am I allowing the associate to buy in too soon? Am I giving up uh, future appreciation for that percentage of the business um, at too early of a stage? In other words, am I not maximizing my opportunity for the person who took the original risk to start the business? And I think in an earned uh, equity opportunity, that opportunity is realized gradually on behalf of the associate. And so the impact is the, the, the dilutive impact is, is realized gradually on behalf of the founder. If we're all doing what we should be doing, we're, we're growing the business, we're growing the profitability of the business, we're improving efficiencies and all of that. And the share price should be increasing on an annual basis and ultimately, that does benefit the founder or current owners of the business tremendously along the way. Uh, and, and when we say it's a rising tide that lifts all boats, or it's a win-win-win type of a scenario, that's really what we're we're solving for on both sides equally on behalf of the associate, the founder or founders, and the business in its entirety. So it's a, it's a good thing across the board from that per perspective as well. So let's let's shift gears a little bit to Walker and talk about some of the mechanics behind this. And I'm going to preface this by saying that this is a podcast. You and I are talking about this verbally and our audience is, is hearing it, be it while they're out on a jog or in between patients or they're driving home or driving to the office or something like that. And these programs are um, very analytically uh, based and, and very numbers uh, mathematically driven. So this is a challenge to talk about verbally and really have the audience understand it, but we're going to give it a go in any event. Um, so when we talk about the mechanics of a restricted stock unit or restricted membership unit perspective, do you want to take the first pass at, at some of the key ways we look at this and the methodology behind it, mechanically speaking? Uh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> so first of all, if you're running, the speed might be a, a seven a minute mile. And if you're with the patient, it's usually a high speed drill. That's the cadence I speak at. Um, so um, as far as, uh, you know, mechanically, um, and I think, uh, you know, what we try to do is understand the the where the business plan where the business is performing today, where the business is headed on a performa basis, uh, performa meaning a, a forward-looking assumptions basis uh, on a five or ten-year plan, and that's through uh, understanding historical performance of the business, the ability of the uh, principal operator, principal operator meaning the owners, to uh, execute on their plan and their confidence level behind it. And that's, are they going to be able to do one de novo per year, two de novos per year, one acquisitions per year, two acquisitions per year? What are the other assumptions that go behind it as far as infrastructure placement, capital needs in regards to um, uh, CapEx or just acquiring additional debt? And then from there, what is the median performance of all providers that is necessary to 
create the hurdle to grow and plus also the average number. So, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we look at different data points from the ADA to our, our internal uh, database of average performance of by specialist it could be general pediatric orthodontic uh, oral surgery um, uh, and other specialties there to determine what is good above uh, average performance. And what I mean by that is, and if in an equity plan, you create a, a, a hurdle in a business, just looking at one aspect of it, um, and there's 10 doctors that are part of a group, and eight out of the 10 doctors qualify for the equity, that means the hurdle is too low. Uh, that's not helping improve the overall performance and driving the business to, to perform well. Um, let's go to the polar end, end side of it. If you create a model and create a hurdle where only two out of the 10 doctors qualify, then the hurdle is too high. Um, and we really shoot for something around three to four in a business. We have multiple providers. Now, some of our groups are emerging, might have, you know, one to three associate doctors. Then we look at our other data points internally to determine that, that hurdle point uh, and also determine the break-even position in the business because uh, we have to exceed that fixed operating expense in that practice and, and look at the delta to say, okay, 50% above that amount uh, is going to be um, um, uh, equity that's created in the business. Uh, so that what I mean by that is, let's say we have an associate that is producing or business producing, you know, a million dollars a year. If that associate produces a million three a year, on that last three hundred thousand dollars, how much of, uh, is the uh, increased improvement and in profit line impact? Meaning, is it fifty percent profit after the fixed operating expenses? Is it sixty percent? Is it forty percent? Um, and based on that, what is the equity being created by the associate doctor partner? Um, those are the things we're trying to solve for on the mechanics. Then we're also trying to solve for, okay, how many people are going to be realizing equity in the business? Um, because we have to look at the dilutive event to the uh, principal doctor, but also the future doctor partners that might participate in the program. And we have to look at it as a holistic purpose. So we have to look at holistically as a business. We have to look holistic as a doctor by doctor um, uh, impact. Um, again, I think earlier I said, you know, we do want the, from a, I look at it from the associates lens, we want it to be impactful for them, meaningful for them, for their for them and their families. Um, so if we can make sure we get them to that point, it's a win-win. Um, and, and we come through that through the economics means. And when we're talking to our principal doctors, and one of the things I, you know, I hear often from our clients is that, hey, that's a really good deal for them. Um, and I think it's a good product when our principal doctors, you know, come from that position and say, that's a good deal because that means they've created a product that, that they can stand behind, um, you know, through the process, not just in 2021, but in 2025 because the product works and the modeling works. So um, hopefully I think I explained the mechanics there a little bit better. And again, this is on a, on a uh, podcast, um, obviously, in, in, uh, in a presentation, it flows through better. Yeah, I, I think anytime you start digging deep into numbers with something as, as complex as this and trying to, to verbally clarify it, it, it is challenging. I think the key takeaways from the audience standpoint on the mechanics are that, you know, first and foremost, um, and I mentioned this in the prior podcast, equity is always bought or earned. It's never given away. All right. That's a principle. You, you, if you take nothing more away from this, just remember that phrase. Equity is earned or bought. It's never given away. 
the next thing is that we are not, not, not advocating uh, to create a system that rewards average performance. All right. So this is the the concept of the best and the brightest. Those are high, those who are high, most highly motivated uh, that produce superior returns. It is a great thing to allow them to earn equity in the business through superior performance. So when DeWalker's talking about looking at all of the associates uh, and comparing and contrasting their performance levels between one another, there's some you know midline, some average level of collections usually um, that, a, that an associate will be able to um, uh, perform on their own. That's the starting point for us. We want to look beyond that to say that what's the hurdle above average that we would want to set to allow an associate to begin earning equity in the business? We're trying to help you raise the bar. We're trying to help provide additional motivation for those associates doing average work. Because as the founder or owners, of the business, you're going to be the greatest beneficiary of, of any increase in performance. And only for the above uh, uh, levels of performance, above that hurdle, are they going to actually earn equity in the business. So it's not necessarily back to dollar one on performance. It's only on the performance above and beyond the hurdle. And this is that moving of the goal post every year. This is that um, com uh, consistently ratcheting up performance. You don't want an associate to uh, hit uh, to to eclipse the hurdle, um, the goal that they have in front of them, and then to coast. Right? We want the business to continue to grow. We want everybody to continue to improve their performance year over year over year, uh, and and the system rewards that type of the type of performance over time. So I think it's a it's a great thing in that respect. One other mechanical piece to Walker that I might ask you about, and we can talk about this from a philosophical standpoint if you want, but it's the, the concept of vesting schedules. Um, and, and I introduced this in the prior podcast, but from a mechanic stand, a mechanical standpoint, vesting schedules are important because they sort of act as the golden handcuffs, for lack of a better term, um, and they don't allow for an associate to to earn a lot of equity in the business to this year, have it all 100% realized, spike the football, turn around and leave the next. Do you want to maybe just talk about vesting schedules for a second at a high level for the audience? Uh, sure. I mean, so I think, uh, you know, the, the, in the term restricted stock units or membership units, depending on the entity structure, uh, you know, just taking that first word, it, it goes back to vesting schedules. And, and the reason Vesting schedules are important. You know, we see them on the shorter end, three years. Uh, more often than not, it's usually five-year vesting schedules. Um, and what we want is, to, to your point, we don't want somebody to, you know, hit a home run or um, and then, you know, try to exit the company next year or not perform at the same um, um, intent as they did in the initial year. But more importantly, you know, we, you know, the businesses go through ups and downs, and and we want the associate doctor partner, executive partner to be focused through the ups and downs of the business of staying in the business. I mean, and really focusing on the longevity and the long-term of the business. So, you know, vesting schedules help ensure longevity of, of, of the business with 
the principals or uh, uh, partners staying in the business. Secondarily, uh, they also ensure um, the intent of proper notification periods, uh, things like that that we've talked about as far as you know, if you are leaving and exiting the business, um, you know, we want the business to have at least a six month notification of exit on a on a reasonable minimum basis. There's different underlying reasons for that, um, and we you know we do want um, the the people that to stay there the whole idea of this equity program is for people to you know stay at the business as long as possible and uh, throughout the, the life cycle of the business now now we do understand life happens and people are going to have to move across state lines or you know just you know things happen where they have to move and their life goals change uh, but uh, the here is the, the the goal here is not to have a revolving door um, and by creating this vesting schedule uh, not that you completely eliminate a revolving door, but I think you significantly reduce it, or ideally, I would like to say you eliminate it, but uh, I'm going to go with a significant reduction because you have a five-year vesting schedule. Right. Good. Good stuff. Um, and and again, difficult to, to clarify in terms of uh, concept and numbers over a podcast, easier to, to deduce from a... Um, uh, seeing it in print, if you will, and walking through how the numbers play out. Um, these are not easy concepts. And, and it goes without saying that most dentists that are that we work with um, have never experienced something like this. So it takes them a little while to wrap their head around, you know, the mechanics really behind how it all works and how it plays out. So one of the interesting trends, I'll say, of the last you know few years that we've been working with group dental practices uh, is not just the challenge uh, from an associate perspective, but it's also one from an executive perspective. We end up working uh, with, I would say, at least 50% of our clients to place a, a leadership executive in those businesses. These are non-clinical people that work on the administrative side of the house, a, a CFO, a COO, and in some cases, a CEO. Um, but these are, are people who are really responsible for helping the founder or founders of the business drive that business to a much greater level uh, from a business application standpoint than the founders could do on their own. And that executive placement piece comes uh, brings with it a handful of challenges. Usually, executives are leaving some type of a, a corporate structure where they have had um, access to equity in one way, shape, manner, or form. And that is their expectation going into another business. And certainly one that we're able to facilitate with some of these same uh, programs that were, were founded in corporate America, obviously. So, DeWalker, do you want to talk a little bit about maybe the difference uh, between how an earned equity model plays out for an associate versus an executive and, and the different lens we look at those through? Uh, yeah, so and I think uh, in any equity program, or and we do incentive plans also for different uh, teams or leadership in the company, um, what we try to focus on is what does that individual have uh, some level of impact on um, and their roles and responsibilities within the organization. So, for the associate doctor's role, we're looking at more on the clinical production collection side. Um, and so that, that is based on the, the hurdle they hit and the actual outcome they have. And I 
went through that earlier in the mechanical portion, which is, you know, if a doctor, you know, the hurdle is a million dollars, the doctor collects 1.3, we have 300,000 dollars above the, the goal, they earn a certain amount of that in equity. Uh, and that's how we look at the associates component of it. Um, when we try, start transitioning towards the executive component of it, you know, this is typically awarded to a, a, a COO, director of operations, or a CFO, or even you know, a CEO within a company that's uh, uh, typically non-clinician in the business. And what we're trying to figure out is, you know, what is the what is what do we what do we want them to do within the business? So in most cases, what we'll do is we'll issue equity or create an economic model based on the the revenue and valuation change. And that could be, let's say a company went from a $10 million valuation to an $11 million valuation over a period of one year. You know, how much of that $1 million do we want to award in equity? Again, keeping in mind that we have doctors also earning equity within the business. You know, do we might have several executive team members earning equity in the business. We got to look at a forward level of dilution understand the debt the company's going to take on board. All those variables have to be taken into consideration. Um, and then we'll say, okay, you know, based on the valuation change, um, that number changes as far as what metrics we use. You know, we'll typically weigh 40% of the uh, equity uh, consideration based on revenue growth. Uh, and 60% of it is weighed typically on EBITDA improvement. Um, so we, we do balance it pretty well. We've done 70, 30, 50, 50, uh, but 60, 40 tends to be good because we want the, the uh, leadership team to focus on revenue growth of the company. Uh, but we don't want to, we don't want to sacrifice EBITDA in the company uh, and vice versa. We don't want the company to focus only on EBITDA um, and not grow the company. And what I mean by that is typically when you see leadership focus on revenue growth, they're, they're, um, adding practices, doing de novos, or just adding full-time employee counts or full FTE counts, uh, as, as I've mentioned in the past, and they're focusing on revenue growth. And that they don't have to focus on the EBITDA and the margin tends to deteriorate. And you'll see businesses go from a $10 million uh, value, revenue business running at a 20% margin, which is $2 million in EBITDA. And then they'll go to a $15 million revenue business and their EBITDA is 2.5. So it's not reflective of the growth of the company. Uh, and what we want, ideally want is we want the company to go from a $10 million in revenue at 20% EBITDA to $15 million in revenue at a 20% EBITDA. Uh, now, you know, it might go down to 19%, 18% because there's different decisions being made to build out infrastructure in the business. But we do want to be focused on bottom line improvement uh, concurrently as they focus on revenue growth. And on the other side, we don't want people to just you know, uh, cut uh, full-time employees and say, hey, I got to get my EBITDA up to 20%. Um, and that has an impact on quality of care with the patients. That has an impact on the quality of life and the working environment that the employees have. And then we start to see attrition because either the employee work environment is not good or the patient engagement environment is not good. Um, yeah, EBITDA is 22%, 25%, but uh, we just don't have a good culture and a good company. So we want to be. We want to uh, uh, focus on both from a leadership position and, and create an equity plan that rewards for the best of both. Yeah, I think that's critically important um, for the audience to understand. Even if they're not um, contemplating 
an equity type, an earned equity type program for their executives. But you know, you can you can only goose the top line at the expense of the bottom line for so long. That's a short term perspective to say, you know, hey, I've got an incentive program in place that rewards revenue growth. Well, heck, just throw more money at it. Don't worry about if we make any, you know, profit on on each additional dollar of revenue. But we're just going to grow the top line at the expense of the bottom line. Well, you can do that for a short period of time, but it's not in the long-term best interest of the business. And the flip side of that is, yeah, if somebody says, well, hey, we're going to cut, we're going to be ruthless about cutting costs. We're not going to make any reinvestment in the business. We're not going to spend any money on marketing. We're going to have the entire staff take a 10% wage reduction or something like that. Well, you're going your bottom line through all of those steps. But once again, that's a short-term effect that's not going to be in the best interest of the business in the long term. So having that balance, and certainly in an earned equity award scenario where, where you balance the top line and the bottom line to ensure the future viability of the business and the overall health of it going forward is of paramount importance. So uh, great, in, great information there. So let's talk about you know restricted stock unit or restricted membership unit in terms of where it works best uh, you know it's it's not the right it's not the the right uh, program 100% of the cases 100% of the time i think it's it's much like any other application something that has the right place in time uh, and for the the right application and we'll talk about uh, profits interest units and where they fit best in a subsequent episode but for now let's stick with uh, rsus or rmus and and where they really work best uh, from an outcome perspective. You want to dive into that one? Sure. Uh, I think uh, there's two aspects of it. Is uh, you know where do you want people focusing on as an organization? That's you know, one question to ask. And then the second is the, is the administrative aspect of it. So um, RSUs tend to administratively work better at the Holdco uh, DSO level. It's uh, because the the benefit of an RSU is you can model out multiple doctors getting it uh, at the same entity level. Not to say that you cannot do that with profits interest. It's just the, the and we'll get into the the, the the waterfall issue in the profits interest, which we'll talk about in the next episode, uh, becomes challenging because you're recreating the water, you know, the, the metrics every time the issuance is happening. So overall in the RMUs, RSUs, you know, the DSO level, you can have multiple doctor partners, executive partners, earning equity in the business uh, as far as creating uh, that uh, cap table or capitalization or ownership structure. It's easier to administer and easier for, for, to follow through with it as far as for the doctors to understand. Um, and then also as far as you know, focusing doctors on a holistic organization level, and we're all part of this one company focusing on the bigger ship, um, uh, rowing in the same direction. It, it just drives that process better through an RMU, RSU on it. Now, you know, you could create that into a sub-DSO structure if you're in multiple states. So you would have RSUs at the one sub-DSO structure, you know, for the state of North Carolina, if you have multiple practices in North Carolina, and then you have other practice, let's say a neighboring state would be Tennessee, uh, and then you would have a sub-DSO there, creating RSUs there. So it's still okay to kind of create a sub-DSO level, but... Uh, uh, creating RSUs at practice levels, then sub-DSO, and then DSO, creating three tranches of equity. Uh, I'm not saying it can't be done. It's just administratively, we can create it, 
it takes us longer to create it, but I think on the back end, you want to you want a product that can be administered with some level of ease um, from a accounting perspective, from a CPA, from a Polaris engagement, and then also from the doctor's understanding of you know how how is their equity and value being realized. So um, our shoes, our muse, better at the holding company. Yeah, and and uh, one slight point of clarification is that you know uh, an employee, uh, an associates. Um, goals would be set at a practice level that he or she could best control the outcome on. Uh, and then obviously the uh, uh, equity being earned would be uh, earned at a, a whole co level. Um, so let's maybe wrap up this podcast with some of the successes that you and I have both um, experienced with our clients over the last handful of years. I think we first, I think we first started rolling out this program it's been a while, probably like three years or more now. I have to go back and look for 17, sure. But it, 2017. Okay. So longer than that, time flies when you're having fun, as they say, right? So uh, over that period of time, I, I'm not sure the number of the programs that we've rolled out either, but it's it's been a lot. And, and a number of them have been with uh, specialty groups. Some have been multi-specialty and general dentistry groups. Some have been pure play general dentistry groups. Um, and, and they've been all over the country, but any particular success stories that you'd like to allude to without actually, you know, sharing names or pointing the finger at anybody? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just overall, uh, you know, the general consensus we've uh, received feedback from our, our principal doctors is that they just see a different level of engagement from the doctors and the business as they go through the process during the product uh, rollout and then in a post-product rollout in the, you know, um, associate doctor engagement process. Um, and we see about a 20 to, you know, 25% improvement in production uh, from a doctor's perspective in the business, which is significant, you know, just from uh, improvement in clinical production. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to focus on an outlier perspective also, you know, uh, we, you know, we had a doctor, we rolled out this program to a 19 doctor group, and this one doctor, I think uh, she was producing about a million, million one in the business. I apologize, don't have the exact metrics in front of me. Uh, but you know, she, she understood the product, came from a corporate America in the past. Um, and uh, you know, we created a economic model where I believe uh, she was going to have about a million five in equity uh, over a period of 10 years, million seven in equity over a period of 10 years. Um, you know, she went for advanced training really understood the, how the model worked, focused on self-development. Um, and then, you know, that self-development impacted the equity uh, uh, goals that she had. And, um, you know, typically we see a doctor earning anywhere from 20000 to $50,000 in equity. And uh, she earned, uh, I think, well in excess of $200,000 in equity in the first year and really threw off our, our models, right? So uh, she's, you know, if she continues the momentum she is doing right now and um, the business continues to be on the growth plan it is, then um, she might be anywhere from $3 million to $6 million in equity based on the business. So that's a significant improvement from, from, from the doctor's lens of, you know, where they thought they're going to have an equity on their own. And I mean, you know, most private practices, if you buy a private practice, you might have a million dollars in equity 20, 25 years later. Here, this doctor realized two hundred thousand dollars in equity, and uh, you know, conservatively, uh, would be at a million five. More than likely, it's going to be three to six million dollars in equity if the business executes where they are. So, 
uh, a really uh, great story to kind of see somebody that uh, invested in themselves and understood the the, the uh, economic model of how associate equity is realized and 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 you know and a good for them and good for that practice uh, group for for working through that uh, the, the the model. Yeah, you can't underscore the owner mindset piece for an associate. You know, the, the founders of the businesses and that are probably all in the audience here already recognize that because they're the ones who took the risk to, to start the business or acquire the business and grow the business. Our audience is the group that's had all the sleepless nights. But, you know, if you think if you think it through, not from the anxiety of ownership standpoint, but from just the abundance mentality, an associate that has the opportunity in front of them to become a partner, to earn equity in the business and, and feel like they have a seat at the table, that mindset is galvanizing. It is motivating. It is something that really does help drive the business forward. And, and when you talk about success stories like that from the, the uh, associate context, there may be some people in the audience that are thinking, well, geez, didn't that have a, a dilutive, a massively dilutive impact uh, to the people that took the rest to, to start the business? And, and I would say it has a dilutive impact for sure, but the increase in the share price is growing at a much faster rate than the dilutive impact. So once again, the, the founder or the current owners of the business are the real beneficiaries of this, even beyond the associate perspective. And, and, and I've seen that with a handful of my clients too. And it's a really, it's a really, really great thing to be a part of. The last piece I'll say on this uh, is that when you undertake a, an opportunity to build a program like this, you should, uh, 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 the people in the audience should not view it in isolation. And what I mean by that is it is part of an overall associate strategy. It's not just something else you have in your business. Uh, it is something that you should lead with, that you should promote, that should be the tip of the spear on your recruiting um, uh, strategy to, to find a higher caliber of candidate, honestly. And if you're not using that to increase the flow of high quality candidates from a recruiting standpoint, you're missing part of the boat because this is re really a, a, a quality solution for all parties that on the recruiting, onboarding and development piece for associates um, is, is unbelievably beneficial across the board. And if you can raise the, the caliber of talent in your organization, through something like this, you really stand the opportunity to build a world beater business. And that's the most exciting thing when you look about, when you think about the coming decade, if you will, of, of being the business owner. So DeWalker, thanks so much for, for joining me today. This has been um, a, a somewhat of a walk down memory lane for us, but it's also something that I know that you and I are both very passionate about uh, and that we um, feel uh, very um, uh, fortunate to have worked with so many clients in these endeavors. I, I really want to thank you for, for sharing your wisdom with the audience today. Uh, thanks for having me.
you got, I, 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 once again, I didn't really have a whole lot of choice, but I'm just glad we we're able to make the time for everybody, you know? So a, as I said, uh, for those in the audience, this is the second in basically a three part series. And, and we will have the third part, uh, third installment in the series on profits, interest units coming up. So definitely stay tuned for that. And if you do have any questions, Generally speaking, around associate equity or certainly uh, specific to restricted stock or restricted membership units, feel free to, to send them to me directly. You can email them to me at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. I'd be happy to try to follow up on any of those questions, or I might even be able to, to read and respond to them on the air on an upcoming episode. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So before we wrap things up, I want to take a minute and answer a question from the audience. And this one comes in from Ashley in Columbia, South Carolina. Columbia, South Carolina happens to be the hometown where I grew up. So I actually kind of had to take this question. I felt obligated to, but it it is a good one. And it's one that we've gotten um, quite a bit over the last year. And, and Ashley's question is, what do you think COVID's ultimate impact will be on the DSO growth in, in dentistry? Uh, And the short answer to this is that it's going to be an accelerant. We're already seeing that uh, across the board, especially in light of some of the tax law changes and some things we've talked about on a prior episode of the podcast. But I think there were a lot of people uh, who, when it came time to return from COVID, might have been older practitioners, might have been close to retirement before COVID hit, and a handful of them just decided that they weren't going to reopen their business. Another handful were close to retirement, but weren't ready to retire yet. And we're looking for a a safe harbor. And we're seeing a lot of those uh, senior dentist type uh, transactions with um, enterprise level groups, meaning the private equity backed multi-hundred location, multiple state type groups. That's the known. Everybody kind of understands how that um, part of the question is playing out because we're seeing it play out in front of our very eyes. But I think there's a second piece of this phenomenon um, that we haven't dug into on a podcast yet. It might be a, worthy of an episode in an upcoming um, uh, in an upcoming episode of the podcast. But I don't see a lot written about it or even talked about, and that is what I'll call practice mergers or or small group mergers. And specifically, what I'm talking about are the entrepreneurial dentists who might be more, let's call them mid-career, whatever that means. They, they may be in their 30s or 40s or early 50s. These are people who, who aren't at the end of their rope and aren't really being driven out of the industry. And they love the business of dentistry, but they also recognize that they need to create a bigger lifeboat for themselves. And by that, I mean the, the fastest way to building some level of size, success, sustainability, and and certainly profitability is through finding other practices to merge with, to form a group, or finding small groups to merge with, small group to small group, and end up creating a a larger group, but something that would still be debt-funded, doctor-founded, and would still have all the the flavors, if you will, um, of a, a traditional group practice. I can't tell you how many 
of these we're in the middle of right now. And we are going to do a series on the podcast around equity with something called cap table mergers. So make a note in your mind of that for upcoming episodes and probably another month. But Ashley's question is really one that isn't just the impact of COVID at an enterprise level DSO uh, impact, but it's also the impact of COVID at a small group level. And that type of proliferation of, of smaller groups um, is one that uh, is playing out very, very quickly, but I still feel like it's somewhat under the radar. And I think this will be one of the stories that will be um, interesting to see it unfold, uh, and it won't have a limited or a finite impact as it relates to 2021. This will be something that plays out over um, multiple years to come, and I think it's really one of the, the fascinating and you know, from our perspective, at least one of the fun aspects of the growth in, in the consolidation of the industry. So great question, Ashley. Thanks for um, for submitting it again from my hometown. And, and I really felt like it was a good stepping off point uh, for, for things that might be beyond just an enterprise level. The second thing um, I wanted to, to talk about in the new noteworthy and cool front uh, is, is a blog that I read. And um, some of you out there in the audience are sort of in my same stage of, of raising children. Uh, my daughter is seven. Um, she's a constant challenge, though we love her a lot, obviously. Uh, and sometimes, as, as even those of you who have older kids can relate, being a parent is um, uh, it's like constantly beating your head against a wall at times. And being a father to a very young daughter, um, while that relationship is is um, special father to daughter, it can be uh, a challenge at, at times with having kids that young. And one of the blogs that I, I've started listening to more podcasts and I've started reading more blogs and content and things about being a parent, being a better parent, understanding parenthood and the challenges and all that, and that we're not all going through this alone. So for those who are in the audience uh, that have young kids, one of the blogs I really get a lot out of uh, is something called The Daily Dad. Um, this is uh, another Ryan Holiday type venture. You've heard me talk about him before on the podcast. But every now and again, as parents, we feel like we're just about to reach burnout with it. You know, I, I'm, I know I don't speak for myself alone. And every now and again, we just need a shot in the arm. We just need some affirmation. We need some positive mental energy. Uh, and we need some context around who we are, what we're doing, and the ultimate reason that we're trying to, to sustain it um, when it would feel like on a, any given day, it's just easier to throw in the towel. Daily, Daily Dad uh, is something that probably takes a minute to read, if that, probably less than that. And for those who are fathers out there in the audience, this is a, a blog that caters to being a dad, obviously. I'm sure there are others that cater to being a mother. I just don't subscribe to them. So this one called The Daily Dad is a, a dose of reality. It's a, it's a dose of positive mental energy. Sometimes it's a shot of confidence, honestly. And for those who are raising young kids and going through the challenges of life and being an entrepreneur and building a business and everything else that's involved with it, this is 60 seconds of sanity for me on a daily basis. 
And and I know that for those who are out there and facing the cha- same challenges, it would probably be the same to you. So I'll try to figure out a way to link to it in the show notes if you want to subscribe. But if you Google Daily Dad blog, I'm sure it's not hard to find either if you want to subscribe to it directly. Hopefully, it's something that will uh, benefit you on the personal side and not just the business side. Well, today's episode was surely a lot of fun. And again, I appreciate DeWalker joining me on the podcast. He's a wealth of of information and and obviously uh, has a lot of passion, much like I do, around the subject of associate equity. I hope you're getting a lot out of uh, both today's episode and our podcast. And if you do, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. We love your compliments. We love your comments. We certainly love your questions. You can submit any and all of those also to me at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. And when you do, I'll try to read and answer them on the air uh, in an upcoming episode. And of course, you can find out more about who we are and what all we do on our website at www.PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.